Well, welcome back from your weekend. I'm Colin McEnroe. Um, I should mention that in the second half of today's show, we're going to talk to uh, John Degata. John Degata is a journalist whose work, who, one of whose stories became a book called Lifespan of a Fact, which was this kind of annotated analysis of how to fact check something and, and, and about a dispute between a writer uh, who took a certain kind of Norman Mailer, Tom Wolfe-like liberties with the truth in order to deepen the effect of his writing and a very, very um, sedulous and um, painstaking fact checker. Uh, and that's in turn turned into a play. Bobby Cannavale played uh, James John Degata on Broadway, and now that I met John Degata, they couldn't be more <laughs> different. <laughs> they are anyway. That's a whole long story. We're not going to talk about that right now. Instead, we're very excited to talk about talk to somebody whose writing I've been reading for a very long time. James Surowiecki, a journalist who has written about business and finance for, among others, Slate and The New Yorker. He's the author of The Wisdom of Crowds. But I will be honest and say that the thing that drew my eye to him most recently, uh, and something we'll talk about a little bit later in this conversation, was a Twitter thread, uh, which is how so many things get started these days, in which he began to advocate for the notion that Connecticut, of all places, should go first in the Democratic primary cycle. Uh, And so we'll make that case uh, in just a little while. But it seems like we've got a lot of other news to digest. Uh, James Surowiecki, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on, Colin. So I don't know. I, I feel, you know, every every four years I go through this and then all the memories are n- neurologically erased. And I, I feel like I don't remember there being such a short amount of time between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. But here we are kind of digesting the news of Saturday, which which really did. I think, you know, Biden's margin in this thing is kind of a big surprise. And we've got I mean, we, we don't have the uh, enough time to digest up pizza, never mind digest uh, a significant change in the race, and we're heading into Super Tuesday. First of all, were you surprised by Biden's margin? I was surprised by his margin. I wasn't surprised that he won pretty convincingly just because, I mean, obviously he had been up in South Carolina in the polls, even despite all of his problems. Uh, But also it did, uh, this is very vague, it felt like in the wake of his not that great but not terrible performance in Nevada that there was some feeling um, kind of building on behalf of him. And then uh, the Clyburn, the endorsement um, of him by James Clyburn, the the, uh, the representative from South Carolina, who's very influential there, I think was, it was pretty clear it was going to be a big deal, not as big a deal as it uh, seems to have turned out to have been, but I thought that was part of it. Uh, and then I think more generally, there was a growing sense among uh, moderates in the party that, uh, if something wasn't done that, you know, Bernie was basically just going to coast to the to the nomination. And and that, I think, freaked a lot of people out. One of the things that I would love to be right now is a, a fly on the wall or in some kind of eavesdropping capacity for the next Biden-Obama conversation. <laughs> because yeah, Obama. No, I agree. It is. I mean, you know, a lot of people were mentioning that over the weekend that, you know, if Obama were ever going to endorse Biden, now would be the time to do it. Um, that seems really unlikely. I mean, it seems like he kind of wants to stay out of it. But yeah, would uh, I, there was some some reporter reported that they exchanged voicemails. Oh no, maybe that was Biden and Buttigieg. But I think Obama and Biden did talk. But yeah. I agree that would be a fascinating conversation. I would love to know just what Obama is telling Biden to do, like if he's giving him any advice, I think it would be very interesting to hear. And I'd like to know, and this is something that we probably wouldn't get directly from that conversation, why Obama does think he should stay out of it. Uh, um, You know, it it does seem... 
ideologically and policy-wise that for and and for obvious reasons he and Biden tracked it together pretty comfortably in a way that he and Bernie for example do not it's interesting it probably speaks to a little bit to his personality that he doesn't want no, to be a part of the right. story I think that's right I think it does have there was a good piece I'm not going to be able to remember where it was either in the hill or politico a couple of weeks ago about kind of his thought process um, and how he was trying to kind of imagine his role and the fact that he didn't want to get into the middle of this. And I do think it has a lot to do with his personality and not wanting to essentially inject himself into obviously what's a very partisan debate. But it is fascinating, especially given that recent report that uh, Bernie Sanders thought about primarying him and personally primarying him in 2012. I mean, we knew Bernie had had called for someone to primary Obama in 2012. Uh, so, yeah, it is very interesting. I mean, I think in terms of, of what you were talking about at the top of the show, um, in terms of the short period between South Carolina and Super Tuesday, you know, it's not just the margin of victory that that changed things. I think, to be honest, Biden's speech after the mm. the win made a big difference, too, because he did seem like a different candidate. He seemed much less tired. He seemed less old, frankly. Uh, he seemed more energized. And then, you know, we also now have Buttigieg dropping out, which is also something that's really complicating or making more interesting um, the math uh, for tomorrow. Well, I think another thing that may explain Obama's reticence and a whole bunch of other things as well. And I mean, we shouldn't, there's there's this thing I call the narcissism of the moment where we all assume that the moment we're in is the most extreme version uh, of these kinds of moments. So we, I look at this particular primary field and I think that the persecution complex that, that not so much Bernie Sanders himself, but his, uh, his acolytes uh, exhibit uh, creates a kind of tension that I'm not used to. Obviously, every primary season is tense. 08 was very tense between Obama and Clinton and Obama's people and Clinton's people. I mean, pick a cycle that actually has a contested primary, and it's probably the case. But there's a way, I think, in which the Bernie Sanders is you know, inner circle of admirers will see in any setback or a defeat is some kind, something a little bit more dark and nefarious than just the typical twists and turns that a primary season takes. They tend to personalize stuff a lot. And as I say, that's not that unusual for a primary season, but it seems like a little bit more from them. Am I crazy to be saying that? No, no, no. I mean, uh, at least certainly my experience <laughs> as someone who has tangled with uh, Bernie supporters on Twitter a lot is is something like that. I mean, I think in this particular case, the I, I wouldn't be surprised if Obama was taking some of that into account in the mm -hmm. sense that if he did step in and endorse, it would obviously be seen as a sign, justifiably, of the Democratic establishment really kind of throwing its full weight behind Biden, which obviously to some degree it's already uh, supporting him. Uh, and I do think that that would amplify the uh, sense of persecution or hostility uh, from the sort of mainstream Democrats that a lot of Bernie supporters feel. And, you know, if you're not convinced that uh, one of the interesting, interesting calculations for Obama also would have to be, if he endorses, does that guarantee Biden the nomination? I would suspect not. And although I think it would certainly help. And you don't want to be in a position of endorsing and then having your candidate not win. That would <laughs> not be a good thing for a lot of different reasons, I think. Um, and so that may also be part of the uh, may also be part of the calculation. I mean, I suspect if we end up 
if we end up in July and it is a contested convention, which is increasingly looking, I think, likely, uh, then I I would be shocked if he did not step in to try to play a role as, you know, peacemaker or finding some way to kind of build bridges. I mean, I, it feels like that's that's kind of in, in some ways maybe what he's waiting for. Right. I, I think that's right, that he's kind of keeping his powder dry for that moment where he can sort of at least present himself as somebody who hasn't taken a side yet. And I also think, to your point, you know, there's, there's a way in which the Democratic Party has to be a little bit nervous collectively about about at least the argument that it's history repeating itself. So in 2016, you had the the establishment kind of pre-back Clinton in a way that seemed to crowd out all other possibilities. Suddenly, Bernie runs this insurgent campaign. It catches fire way more than people had thought. And at the end of the whole process, there were a lot of us who were saying, well, it was a change cycle. You know, it was a cycle about about people seeking significant change in the distribution of power and the, the workings of American government. And Clinton was a very poor standard bearer for that. She seemed to be very much part of the uh, establishment and, and not someone heavily committed to change in the way that Sanders did. And it made her a poor uh, dueling partner for Trump. This cycle, though, is not la- that cycle. And, and I think that's maybe a thing that they're, they, the people People backing Biden, uh, I think, need to sort of make that point and have that point be understood that if there's opposition to Sanders this time, it may have a different reason. Because to me, this cycle is about just getting power back away from Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think there is that sense of, you know, I mean, Biden has used this language, I think, you know, the the idea of just kind of a return to normalcy, that people that there is a sense in which people, a lot of Americans, I think, just want to go back to something that feels normal. And I think 2016 did feel very different. I mean, I, I have a slightly different take on 2016, which is I think in some ways we underestimated how much people hated Hillary Clinton, just mm-hmm. literally oh, Hillary yeah. Clinton. And that that drove a lot of voters, both in the Democratic primary and then also in the general election. And so, you know, I, I mean, I, the the joke, which I totally believe, is that I think Martin O'Malley would have won in a walk if he had gotten the nomination. I don't think he would have had any problem beating Trump. And that may be wrong, but I do think there was something about Hillary herself, uh, particularly in an election where a lot of people were thinking about change, that she seemed to embody so much of what people didn't like about kind of American politics. And, and, and then obviously you layer in the sexism and the particular hatred of the Clintons that so many Republicans feel. And and it was an unusual thing, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the democratic establishment threw its weight behind her and, and, and I do think there has to be a little, they have to be a little gun shy about doing so with Biden, because the one thing I'll say, let me say this quickly is I think one of the things that is interesting about 2020 is the democratic establishment has not gone all in on Biden, or Mm -hmm. certainly had not done so until maybe the last few days. Um, Not just Obama, just generally, he had not been someone who had gotten a ton of endorsements. There was not a, I mean, look at how much trouble he's had raising money. I mean, he's way behind Bernie. He's way behind Buttigieg for that matter, in terms of the amount of money he's raised. So they actually have not gone all in on him. And and I think, you know, that 2016 may may be in part responsible for that. Right. And, and the, another part of this, and this will sort of lead us maybe a little bit towards part of the conversation we need to have anyway, is this cycle didn't lay out well for him so that, uh, I mean, I will confess, I, I think after Nevada, uh, I used the term dead man walking or something. <laughs> 
like that. Yeah. I mean, an awful lot of people had really pronounced this guy dead. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, not, this isn't just sort of, oh, well, he's reestablished himself. He was tipping a little bit and he got the boat uh, up and sailing. A lot of people had just completely counted him out of this process. And I don't know if that's sort of an indictment of punditry or the just weird waiting uh, of this, of the way the primary and caucus cycle goes. I mean, I, I think it's a couple things. I mean, I think there is a little bit, we're obviously, you know, prone to overreact. I mean, if you go back to January, last January, the polls look, or, or let's say April, the polls look pretty much where they are now. So, you know, if, if nothing, had, if you just had jumped ahead 12 months, you would have been like, oh yeah, this is pretty much what we thought it was going to be. Biden versus Sanders, blah, blah, blah. So there's a little bit of overreacting. Um, uh, I think some of it was just the way the 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 primary cycle ran, you know, the the order of the primaries worked, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But I do think Biden deserves some blame or whatever you want to call it for it, because it wasn't just that he wasn't getting the results. He also just I, I don't know how else to put it. He just seemed out of it. He yeah. seemed really uh, old. I don't mean like chronologically old. He just seemed old in the sense of he did not seem like he was really there. I mean, I remember uh, watching a, an appearance that he made before like firefighters in Philadelphia. And this was a few weeks before he or maybe a month before he announced. And they were chanting, you know, run, Joe, run. And he said, like, oh, you should probably save that for in a little bit. But the way he said it and just his entire manner seemed so tired mm -hmm. um, that it, I think it was just hard to imagine him up against Trump, who, for all of his <laughs> many problems, certainly seems is always seems energetic and robust in a kind of weird way. Um, and so I do think Biden, you know, was part, himself was driving part of people's reaction. But I totally agree. I mean, I think even before Nevada, I was like, I just I don't I don't see how he can do this. But I don't know. After, his speech in South Carolina was very good. And he does have this ability to connect with voters one on one that there's no question about that in my mind. Right. No. And a lot of it, a lot of it will be post Super Tuesday, whether he can kind of stay away from that other version of it. I mean, it yeah. was within the last week to 10 days, he's done stuff like he seemed to think he was running for the U.S. Senate at one point. Yep. Uh, he seemed to think he'd been arrested along with Nelson, Nelson Mandela at another point. Yeah. Uh, it turned out it was Martha and the Vandellas. He just got it mixed up. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I just, so he's got to stay away from that, obviously. He's got to be seen to be this new sort of clear-headed guy. Hey, just, just as I'm kind of managing the clock here, as we head towards a convention, one point that you made to uh, producer Betsy Kaplan, I think, is, and it's so true. Everybody on social media, they, everybody thinks they know what the rules of the convention are. Yeah. And, and basically, except for this guy, Dave Camper, that you pointed us out to, it's Camper yeah. with a K, by the way, on Twitter. Nobody knows what, the, I thought I knew what the rules of the convention were, but there's certain parts of it that, that I didn't understand. So it might be worth just taking a moment to say, well, say whatever you want about the rules of the convention. Well, I mean, I think there, there are two things that are probably worth keeping in mind for people. I mean, there are more than that, but let's say two. So um, the first is, uh, this is before you get to the convention. So this is obviously, we know that in the primaries, uh, there's this 15% threshold rule, which you have to get to 15% in, in the state or in any individual congressional district to get any delegates at all. So that's why the Buttigieg a decision to drop out starts to get very interesting because one of the consequences of that is that will almost certainly send 
uh, Biden, definitely. And also perhaps candidates like Elizabeth Warren and maybe even Bloomberg um, over the 15 percent threshold in states that they were not going to hit it in otherwise. And the consequence of that is that uh, it will put a real dent in the total number of delegates Bernie is probably going to take on Super Tuesday, uh, because if you're the only person over 15 percent in a state or one of two, you can really make a get a huge haul of delegates, mm -hmm. even if you're only polling like, you know, 35 percent of the vote. So that changes the math. And one of the things one of the consequences is that uh, it's becoming increasingly unlikely that any candidate is going to get a majority of delegates before the convention. And I think it's I think it's getting increasingly unlikely that any candidate is going to have a really big plurality. So the the once you get to the convention on the first ballot, everyone you're not legally bound, but pretty much everyone will vote for the candidate that uh, they have you know been been pledged to or if, say, Buttigieg endorses Biden, most of Buttigieg's delegates will probably, you know, support Biden or whatever. It is. Right. But they don't have to. We should say that. too. They don't have to. Yeah. And in this and the second part, they definitely don't have to. So some of them will go somewhere else. But then it gets really interesting because after that, on the second ballot and then every ballot after that, uh, those delegates are essentially free to vote for whomever they want. So while a lot of the uh, paranoia or I shouldn't say paranoia. A lot of the concern from, say, Bernie supporters have been about the superdelegates who are these uh, basically Democratic Party officials or uh, elected, uh, you know, every member of the House of Representatives and, and so on, uh, about them having a vote on the second ballot. The real power is going to be in the delegates because there's about 4000 of them. Mm -hmm. They're only like 700 superdelegates. And. You know, it's going to be really interesting if we get there because there's going to be a lot of horse trading. There's going to be a lot of basically cajoling. And but ultimately, the delegates get to decide for themselves. You know, they're not pledged right. once the, this, the first ballot is done. And uh, I don't think we really know what will happen. It, it could be just completely fast. No, I've certainly covered floor fights at the state level, but I've never covered a floor fight at that magnitude. It would be yeah. very interesting. All right. So uh, as I said at the beginning, one of the things that I, I suddenly noticed uh, one Sunday morning or whenever it was, uh, was that James Surowiecki was proposing on Twitter that maybe Connecticut should go first, not Iowa, not New Hampshire, not Nevada. So uh, give us your argument for that. Well, I mean, the simple idea is basically that the Connecticut's demographics actually look like the United States. I mean, almost ex exactly is overstating it, but certainly in terms of, say, race, race and ethnicity, they look very, very similar to the United States. So you would have a state that instead of starting with two nearly all white states like uh, Iowa and, and New Hampshire, you would have a state where, you know, a candidate would candidates would really be trying to reach across all demographic groups. Um, and uh, that's obviously, I think, important because starting in Iowa and New Hampshire does skew the race. Uh, it gives people who aren't really able to appeal, say, to black voters or don't seem to have much appeal um, a, 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 a leg up. Um, by contrast, it it hurts someone like Joe Biden very clearly this year because uh, he's so strong in the, in the black community. Um, and I think it's also just, you know, not a great thing for the Democratic Party, which is by far a more diverse party than than Republicans uh, to be starting in these two states that really don't look anything like the United States and really don't look anything like um, the Democratic Party. But it's actually more than that. Um, I mean, Connecticut also is a small state. So that's important because 
you know, ideally you do want to give people who are kind of upstarts or insurgents a chance to build strength over time, don't not have to spend a huge amount of money right away. Um, and uh, so, you know, some people have suggested, well, maybe we should start with Illinois or Pennsylvania. Uh, I think, you know, that just changes the math of it in a way that's probably not that useful. So Connecticut is is small. It's about the same size as Iowa in terms of population, but it's also geographically much more compact, obviously. So that makes it easier for people to travel around, makes it easier for the kind of retail politics that primaries generally feature, early primaries feature, the kind of stuff you see in New Hampshire and Iowa. Um, I think that's all really good. And then, you know, when I think about Connecticut, I mean, I, part of this comes from the fact, so I just moved back to Connecticut in in uh, in the fall from, from, from Brooklyn, but I, I grew up here, I was born here. Um, and when I went to college in North Carolina and I told people I was from Connecticut, they all were like, Oh, it's so fancy. It's so hoity toity, which I thought was weird. Cause I was born in Meriden and I, you know, lived in Enfield, um, <laughs> you know, Meriden, basically an old Rust Belt town, yeah. Enfield, a pretty ordinary suburban town And Connecticut to me is also very diverse in terms of the range of, um, locales it has in terms of the kinds of cities it has, you know, it has Rust Belt towns. It has these big old cities. It has, you know, little middle-class towns. It has the gold coast, whatever. It's a genuinely representative, I think, picture of the United States. And there was this great study that 538 did two years ago, where they looked at what city looked most like the United States as a whole and, or what metropolitan region and the metropolitan region they said they they picked was New Haven, Milford, and um, I live in New Haven now, and that makes total sense to me. And Hartford was like third or fourth. And um, I just think if it's a, a candidate who could appeal to Connecticut voters, is a candidate that you would be confident could actually appeal to America. And to me, it seems like why would you not start there? That seems like the place you want to start if you're the Democratic Party. Well, also. Um, well, I would make two points. One of them is, you know, in terms of Connecticut's reputation, astronomers have recently, or astrophysicists have recently concluded that the actual average color of the universe is beige. So I feel like that's <laughs> somehow or other that's a point in Connecticut's favor, although I'm not really yes. sure how I'd make that connection. But um, but also, you know, Connecticut, rather than being politically as staid and small C socially conservative or, or or personally conservative as its reputation might suggest. You know, in 92, Connecticut went for Jerry Brown, and that's with the entire Democratic machinery led by Joe Lieberman and the Democratic state chairman and everything pushing hard for Clinton. Clinton was supposed to win Connecticut, uh, and Jerry Brown insurgents uh, tipped it the other way. And even on the Republican side, speaking of conventions and releasing your delegates, I was at Philadelphia in 2000, where Connecticut had gone for McCain, and and McCain had released everybody to W, and the Connecticut people wouldn't do it. <laughs> I was at meetings. Yeah, no, exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, and I think it's also an interesting state because it's obviously it goes Democratic in presidential elections, but it's obviously has a certain purple element to it. If you look at at you know both state politics and then also um, uh, national politics, at least historically. So yeah, I, I think there are a lot of reasons why it it makes a lot of sense. The one thing people push back on a lot was um, you know the presence of New York makes it too expensive. There may be something to that in terms of media buys, but you know that really is about a certain part of the state. And, and it, to my mind, I don't think that's a good enough reason, certainly to stick with Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, I, I really, 
I have no confidence this is going to happen. I still think it's weird that states decide which goes first. It seems but just bizarre to me. But um, I really do think it, it would be it's it's kind of a no brainer for for the Democratic Party to do it. Right. And plus, we can both start Airbnbs. Uh, <laughs> and at least for a little while, we'll we'll be rolling in bucks. No, sir, just um, very little time left. But it, there was this kind of sense at the end of the Iowa debacle this year of everybody saying, well, that's it for you, Iowa. You're not going to get to do this anymore. But but I wonder about that. First of all, I think people forget pretty quickly. I, I think by 2022, people are not going to remember enough to be excited about what's going to happen in 2024. Uh, but there may also not be the machinery to take anything away from from Iowa if it doesn't want to release it, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the real strange thing is the fact that states still do seem to have I, – I've never really been able to make a kind, any kind of logical sense of it, but it actually is much harder to – uh, for the Democratic or Republican parties to arrange the primary schedule the way they want, um, then you would think it would be. Now, obviously, you can do it to some degree. That's how Super Tuesday got created. But it requires a lot of lobbying. And I definitely think that, you know, for Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, it's just a huge deal to to do. I mean, it makes sense. They're kingmakers to some degree. Although, you know, you're going to look at this year. One of the things that will help make the case against Iowa is, look, you know, so Pete Buttigieg finishes uh, you know, first or second, depending on your perspective in Iowa. And he's dropped out by Super tu- before Super Tuesday. So maybe, you know, what really is the point? And um, but I wouldn't be surprised if you're right. And in fact, when it things roll around, you know, we end up back in this situation. I mean, because the other aspect of this is if they do nothing else, they should scrap the caucus and just replace it with a primary because mm-hmm. the caucus system is itself, I think, uh, crazily undemocratic. Um, but uh, but it does feel like the kind of thing that may be easier said than done and certainly easier to do a Twitter thread about than actually make happen in reality. <laughs> oh, no. How could that be true? Uh, I James, know, exactly. James Sirowicki, it's so great to talk to you, a journalist who's written about business and finance for, among others, Slate and The New Yorker, now back living in Connecticut where he belongs, the author of The Wisdom of Crowds. Uh, we have to take a little break now. I have a chance right now to thank Betsy Kaplan, senior producer, for setting up this show. Cat Pastor is on the board. And did you know that, by the way, if you're willing, if your state's willing to go later, they give you more delegates? I just found that out this year. And I think you get a toaster, too. Connecticut is the place. So, welcome back. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I'm actually recording this at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. So, John Degato, when did the book Lifespan of a Fact come out? It came out in 2012. 2000, because I think somebody, and I thought it was you, but I think it might be your collaborator, came on this show at the time to talk about the book when it came out. So anyway, Lifespan of a Fact is playing at Theater Works right now here in Hartford. The author, John Degata, is here. John Degata is an essayist, professor of English, and director of the nonfiction writing program at the University of Iowa. The author of six books, including Lifespan of a Fact, which we're talking about right now. It's a book. It's a play. It's a line of sheets and towels at JCPenney. So I'm going to have you summarize the play. Well, I didn't write the play. I know. So but you're a character in the play. I am someone who shares a name with a character in the play. Better way to put it. Let's see. The... Do, you want me, do you want me to try to summarize it and you can correct me? Yeah, it's not, right. my, it's not my play. All right. So, so this is the, a play essentially about a dispute about a magazine essay that uh, is going to be published. The essay is about the suicide uh, of a young person in Las Vegas. And the magazine that is publishing the essay has sent a very young 
mostly untested, but almost uh, obsessively cautious fact checker to fact check the piece. And he has, I don't want to spoil too many things, but he has taken his mission very, very seriously. And so what ultimately happens, what unfolds before you is a debate that sometimes turns into an argument that sometimes escalates into a fight between the author and the fact checker. And it is mediated at times by the editor of the magazine. I'm going to get you into this conversation now, John. The argument is really about whether or not Every single thing, every single little detail in a story has to be true or whether the slight alteration of certain details can create a larger, more profound, more poetic truth by being set free from the minutiae of tiny little facts. I think point of fact, I could say that your summary isn't totally accurate because the the story and the play is based on real experiences that the fact checker and I had, but mm-hmm. not real events. No, uh, that's it would almost have to be the case. Yeah. <laughs> that a certain certain liberties have been taken there. But see, that that's interesting too, because obviously the whole conversation begins about taking liberties mm-hmm. or what the fact checker sees as liberties. Perhaps the author, John Degata, doesn't see wouldn't use the word liberties because there's an implicit kind of violation in that word. I do use the word liberties. Probably John in the character, who is a little more stubborn than I am, would not use Mm. the word liberties. He, I think, suspects that he is, by taking his liberties, telling a truer version of the story Mm. and that the facts were getting in the way of his ability to do that. Yeah, there are just sometimes he wants a certain uh, rhythm of prose. Sometimes he, he feels as though a certain tiny alteration of a tiny little mostly insignificant number has some kind of sonic thrust to it. Mm -hmm. But this is unacceptable to the fact checker. This is uh, completely unacceptable to the fact checker who regards uh, all of this, any departure from the truth. Well, why don't we let the fact checker speak for himself? This is from the Theater Works production that is up right now, which John Degata at this very moment has not yet seen, but we'll see tonight. And you'll see the here the three characters having a bit of an argument about how one might even be remembered if one took liberties. No one can hide anything anymore. You fudge a number here, you alter a detail there, they will find you out. You can't make me responsible. When the blogs and the fan sites and Twitter and 4chan and Reddit and whatever in the whole insane internet, when they start tearing you down brick by red brick, they're not going to say, wow, John Degada altered certain details in the service of poetic truth. They're going to say, wow. John DeGata lied. Since the time you wrote the book and as this play has been unfolding and become the thing that it's become, a slightly different conversation about truth and facts has been taking place in our society. I don't know. Does that change this whole thing for you as you're watch, sitting there in the audience watching it? What are you thinking? I hear your question. It's a good yeah. question. It's an important question. I'm usually enjoying the play. I'm mm-hmm. usually hoping the laughs land Mm -hmm. because it is meant to be a funny play. But obviously, I have a different relationship to this character who is making these claims than most people. When the book came out, I remember the John character in the book being compared to Lance Armstrong. And I'm not sure I've actually heard anyone say that this John character is 
what he's arguing is giving license to Donald Trump. But I I can imagine people saying that. And that's problematic. But I think at the core of the play and certainly at the core of the book, it's important to remember that really what this character is talking about is a literary issue. Mm-hmm. He's He's interested in literary essays that go back, you know, millennia. He might be the only one who's uh, viewing the issue as that and and not one that's speaking to the current political climate. But that was my purpose in, in writing the book. And it actually was the purpose of the playwrights too. This, this was put together years before the current mm-hmm. climate that we're in. I want to talk about that, about that issue of form too, because I, I think within the, the whole framework of a literary essay, when I read a literary essay, if I'm sick and I want medical information, I don't read Virginia Woolf's essay <laughs> on, on being ill, right? Right. I, that, I wouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. I'd be reading Virginia Woolf for a completely different reason, for, right. for whatever uh, empathy and perspective is in there. But I mean, basically, I'm also probably going to read you know, the New England Journal of Medicine or something for the actual mm-hmm. medical information. But that's, that's an interesting question, too, is what does the reader think the bargain is between him and the writer? Mm-hmm. And with that piece in particular about the suicide in Las Vegas, does the reader understand the implicit intentions of the essayist, of you, creating some kind of different literary truth than what would satisfy a Harvard fact checker? It's a complicated issue because I think – the reader used to understand yeah. that uh, there was a difference. Around the 1950s, 1960s, all subgenres within nonfiction started to, at least in readers' minds, merge mm-hmm. under this title, nonfiction, which is a very new literary term. And so everything that could exist under that umbrella, including journalism, including memoir, including essays, including highly experimental hybrid things all fall under this umbrella term. And because of that, we've started to insist, I think, that even the the sacred social service of journalism mm-hmm. and the fact that it exists under this term right alongside things like memoir and essay and lyric essay and biography and whatnot, it seems like readers have started to assume that everything be written with the same standards of journalism. Mm-hmm. And that emerged with new journalism in the 50s and 60s. And it's a standard that I can say in my writing program, (laughs) (laughs) which is training some of the best young writers in the country, that's not what they're writing toward. And so it's a a problem. And it's mostly our fault, I think, as essayists for not doing as good a job as fiction writers and poets. I don't don't agree. I I don't agree that it's your fault. First of all, I think this moves historically in cycles. So Tom Wolfe wants to write something and he wants to, you know, do some real new journalism in which he injects himself and his perceptions and he perhaps, you know, takes some liberties, we're back to that word, uh, with stuff that's going on. And I don't think it's as big a problem because if you really wanted to know something about Leonard Bernstein, you could find it out from somebody else. Sure, sure, sure. But now it's less clear who you go to at the end of a Degata uh, essay, uh, uh-huh. you know, or, or at the end of a, you know, one of David Foster Wallace's essayist pieces. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say you really need to know something about lobsters and you don't trust David Foster mm-hmm. Wallace. Mm-hmm. 
what do you do now? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to that question is much more of a jump ball than it used to be. I think you're making sense. I, I think I disagree. Okay, good. Just disagree a little bit more. And then well, we'll I just up. disagree yeah. as a person, not yeah. as a no, writer, no, not okay. as a – Disagree as a person. I just disagree as an American because we can't we – can't, forfeit ourselves to that that oh I, that idea I agree that we can't forfeit ourselves but I think you have to acknowledge conditions on the ground right now and in addition to what I do what I'm doing right now with you I read a newspaper column that appears in eight newspapers today is the day it runs and I get emails and it's absolutely the case that <laughs> <laughs> there there isn't a source that I could cite for some of the things that I say that sure. would satisfy the people right. who are angry at me on right. a given Sunday morning yeah yeah. So, like, so what do you do in that situation? You know, <laughs> well, you don't, you you don't do anything. I mean, there there is something to be said for we readers taking some responsibility for mm-hmm. what we're reading and for critically analyzing what we're going to make of it. And it's an impossible conversation to have if if the <laughs> argument is that the New York Times can't be trusted anymore. I hope I'm not articulating a total declinist argument about that. But I do think there's something fundamentally broken right now in a worse way than it would have been broken in 2012. You know, there's this really interesting push and pull going on between you and the fact checker, you know, and you're both right. I mean, I think it's it's possible to read that book or watch this play and think, well, they're both right, but there's some irrecon- irreconcilable areas yeah. between the two of them. But yeah. that doesn't, I mean, it's a very sort of, you know, kind of Hegelian thing, you know, mm-hmm. that you ultimately you, you, you let both of them have some of their argument. That's the only way you can walk out of their scene. You think so? Okay. Okay. Well, what do you think? <laughs> you just think you're right. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think what's interesting is that none of the characters are right. Mm-hmm. And at times, they're also unlikable. But right. there are also times when we're cheering for them. Mm-hmm. There are times I've been in the audience when Jim has given the speech that that you played earlier, mm. and there's been a round of applause. Mm. And that speech is followed immediately by one from the complete opposite end of the spectrum by John about his mother. And that's followed by a round of applause. And mm. so you you're experiencing in the audience simultaneously a mm-hmm. belief that the Jim character is absolutely right, mm-hmm. the John character is absolutely right, despite the fact that they are saying completely different things. Right. And that's kind of beautiful. I think it's amazing that you can walk out of the theater and not know exactly what to believe. And therefore, you need to you need to do some thinking on your own. I think that's... Yeah. That's a cool experience. So if you want to set up that contrast, so we played that clip before where the fact checker is talking about how ultimately because everything is preserved on the internet, because fact is ultimately checkable through the internet, bracket, that's a very dubious proposition, close bracket, that (laughs) if you say something that's not true, you'll be branded as a liar throughout history and stuff like that. So a round of applause from the audience and then this speech. My mother's last words were in this chair. She blacked out. I said, goodbye, Mom, right here. Can you confirm that? Can you? Or am I embellishing the facts to make a better story, to get to the truth of what losing my mom felt like? She stopped breathing in the ambulance. The EMTs resuscitated her. We shut off her life support in the hospital. So where'd she die? Where did she die? Which is really, really true? Look up this chair in the Pier 1 catalog 
It'll tell you the dimensions are 31 by 37. So it couldn't possibly fit in the space, not with room for a walker. So there's no way my mother died in this chair. At least that's what a fact checker will tell you. All right, that's Rufus Collins playing John Degada, a person named John Degada who is not exactly the same person who's sitting in my studio, who happens also to be named John Degada, all right? Uh, And the play is Lifespan of a Fact. And we'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll talk about more of this. I'm sick to death of seeing things from tight-lipped collars and in mommy's little shoulders. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth now. I've had enough of watching scenes with schizophrenic, egocentric, paranoid, prima donnas. All I want is the truth now. We're talking to John Degata. John Degata is both a writer and a character in the play Lifespan of a Fact, a play based on his book. It's at Theater Works in Hartford through March 8th. He is sitting here in the studio with me, the person, not the character, just to once again to kind of re- reset here. So this is a play in which people are sort of arguing about which kind of truth is more important, the most granular kind of fact-checkable, verifiable kind of truth or a truth, at least in the context of an essay, a truth that derives its power, at least in part, from feelings and sensations that are somewhat detached from fact. Yeah, I think that's right. But it's important to emphasize that this is a conversation happening in the context of an essay. I don't think that there's anyone in the play, there certainly isn't anyone in the book arguing Mm. that this is a legitimate discussion to have when we're talking about journalism. Right. Although some of the tension between Fingal, the fact checker, and Degada, the writer, is sort of about that. I mean, you know, there's the truth of the heart. And in a way, that's the argument that the Degada character is making. The truth of the heart, there's a way in which that's more powerful and more profound. I think the Fingal character would say, who gets to arrogate that particular idea? I always go back to to Ronald Reagan at the time of the Iran-Contra stuff. He came on TV and he did one of those speeches to the nation. He said, we absolutely did not trade arms for hostages. <laughs> um, we didn't. Okay. And then six weeks later, the Tower Commission is starting to take testimony and stuff like that. He comes back on TV and he goes, six weeks ago or whatever it was, I was here on television addressing the nation and I said that we did not trade arms for hostages. I still feel in my heart that that is true. <laughs> but other details have surfaced and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there's some facts that have come out that contradict what I believe in my heart. It, it is a little bit of an uh, example of the, the so-called slippery slope <laughs> when you start having a truth of the heart. Like, who's going to get to do that? Uh, just a licensed, card-carrying uh, essayist or the freaking president of the United States? Well, not the president. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Because our, our relationship with a president, our relationship with elected officials is not the same relationship that we have with artists mm. and literary writers. Yeah. It can't be. As you said earlier, I don't, I don't want my doctor taking liberties with the prescriptions that she's <laughs> giving me right. or in how she's you know, reading an EKG. An EKG, yeah. An EKG. You know, and you know what your doctor's saying? I just read this Charles Lamb essay about uh, heart problems. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And it's really reshaped my thinking, John, about what you're going through right now. Absol- That's, you don't want that. Yeah. I want 
whatever textbook she read as a medical student <laughs> to have been impeccably fact-checked. Yeah. I don't need that from a memoir that I'm reading. And mm. I, I think it's okay for there to be different standards. But I don't have the same relationship or I have never claimed to have the same relationship with a reader that I personally as a reader want to have with my favorite journalists mm. or that I want to have with a yoga instructor mm. or that I want to have with my congressional representative or that I want to have with my doctor or the person I'm sleeping with. These are all different relationships. Right. And there are different levels of trust and there are different levels of um, licenses that we give. I also deeply believe that we we license the artists with certain liberties because whether or not we acknowledge it, we we expect them to go into terrain that is pretty uncomfortable. And we also hope that they will somehow help us find our way into that territory and challenge us a little bit in order to push ourselves into thinking a little bit more deeply about some issues. I don't want the president to be doing that. But. Well, I mean, part of the problem is, not to sound glib about this, but we used to have higher standards for at least in the area of factual truth for the president of the United States than we did for essayists. And, <laughs> and I'm not sure that's the case anymore. I think if, if an yeah. essayist and a president told me contradicting versions of the same story, I'd be inclined mm -hmm. to believe the essayists mm -hmm. because the president is much more clearly these days an awful lot of the time a fiction writer. And that's part of the problem mm -hmm. too. Uh, these roles are blurring a little bit too. Mm -hmm. People might trust their yoga instructor more than they trust their congressperson. Mm -hmm. And they might not even be entirely wrong about that. Mm -hmm. And in a moment like this, which is legitimately scary, it can feel like the safest thing to do is clear cut our way through all forms of communication that are claiming to take licenses. But the problem is that we, we risk pulling up the flowers with the weeds. Mm -hmm. You said earlier that you think something fundamental has broken. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Well, good. And I think that we have to believe that. You also said earlier that this is a, a wave. It's, that we're, we're experiencing well, there's, there's something cycles. cyclical. There's cycles, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, that's okay. We're grownups. <laughs> Some of us are. <laughs> well, yeah. No, I, I agree. And so I think the problem is, okay, so back in 1978, Cisla writes this tremendous philosophical book. It's really almost a long essay called Lying. And there was has some subtitle like a moral inquiry, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But one of our fundamental premises is that that our social interactions are based on implicit trust, that if you started with the assumption, kind of like Jim Fingal seems to, at least as a character in the play, that anything that you read might be a lie, anything that anybody said to you might be a lie. Uh, you know, prior to being fact-checked, anything that like almost the default setting of anything that you hear is that it's possibly or probably untrue. You'd be rent rendered unable to function and we'd be unable to. I like, you know, I just, I believe that you are John DeGata because you said so, but you're some guy who turned up in my oh, studio. Yeah. yeah. That'd so, be really interesting. <laughs> but see, but we couldn't do that, right? I yeah. mean, if we had to fact check every, everything, we'd just, we'd never make it out through the first hour of our day mm -hmm. because in fact, human interaction is based on trust, is based on a belief that we're not being lied to all the time. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that when those expectations turn out to be less true than Cicely Bach thought they were going to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's in a way, in 78, Cicely Bach is writing about something that doesn't exist yet, the mm -hmm. internet. Mm -hmm. The internet, which is full of crap that isn't true. Mm -hmm. And that might be one of the things that snapped our twig a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting that Fingal says this in the play, oh, well, the Internet is just a great repository for fact-checking and truth. Well, yeah, but the Internet, <laughs> internet is also full of things that are not true that are exactly the kinds of things Sisselabach worried about. I'm talking too much. You should talk. No, no, no. I, I, I like that idea. I, I might be really off base saying this, but I don't, I don't believe that art can lie. Mm, that's really good. I think I think that's 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 all I can say about that. I I think I agree with you. We need to be able to trust yeah. at certain levels right. that our our relationships with the diversity of people in our lives mm. are based on mutual respect mm. and honesty. But I deeply deeply do not believe that art can lie. That's a good place to stop, I think. Although I think as John Degara can tell, much to his discomfort, I could talk about this for another two and a half hours with him. But we will stop here. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing. And we're going to be back tomorrow with something. It's not really at the tip of my tongue, whatever that thing is, but it's going to be excellent. I can guarantee you that because I would never lie to you, right? You can fact check that, can't you? All right. Thanks for listening. They say 65% of all statistics are made up right there on the spot. 82.4% of people believe them, whether they're accurate statistics or not. Now, I don't know what you believe, but I do know there's no doubt I needed another double shot of something 90 proof. I got too much to think about. Too much to think about. Too much to figure out. Stuck between hope and doubt. Too much to find.